Hey guys, welcome to the Show Up Dad. This is a podcast for hardworking fathers looking to level up their fathering skills and be more than just a paycheck or provider for the home. Today, I want to welcome Lane Price. He has over 20 years of experience in the industry and is currently working at a large utility in North Carolina. He's a proud father of two boys and one daughter and loves to share his extensive love for God, country, family, and line work. Today, he's going to share with us what it took to become a show-up dad. Welcome to the show, brother. I'm glad you got me, David. Man, it's, uh, it's definitely a blessing to be able to come on the show and uh, talk to a lineman just like myself and you know, spread, the, spread the love of God around, man. It's, you know, he's definitely been a major point in my life, uh, a big stepping stone to get to where I'm at now. So once again, I want to I wanna thank you. Absolutely, man. No, it's just an honor to have you on this show, brother. I wanted to open up. Can you uh, go ahead and give our listeners a brief history of your family of origin, your father, your mom growing up, just, you know, just so we can get to know you better, if you don't mind, Lane. Well, I'll you know, start from my childhood, David. I, uh, you know, I was born and raised in South Mississippi. Uh, you know, it was a small town where everybody knew everybody. Uh, you know, I remember growing up. The house stayed unlocked, vehicles stayed unlocked, purses and wallets in the cars. You know, so it was an awesome place to grow up where I hunted and fished with my dad. You know, it was just small, small town, country life, you know, uh, the American dream as far as a childhood would go. Uh, my dad, he, he was a truck driver my whole life. Uh, you know, so he was spent a lot of time on the road taking care of his family. And, uh, you know, I'm very thankful for the parents that I had that instilled the core values in me that, that make me who I am today. Uh, they were both present in my life and worked together as a team to raise me and my two brothers. I'm a middle child of three boys. Uh, you know, kind of a little history on my dad. He, he went by the handle country boy on the road driving a truck. Man, that, that fit him to a T. You know, my, my dad was a bigger-than-life superhero to me. Uh, he was the... He is the definition of a man in my book. Uh, you know, somebody I've always looked up to. You know, and you know, my mom. We you know, <laughs> we call her the mighty midget. My dad's six foot two, and my mom's five foot four, little bulldog. You know, kind of <laughs> keeps my dad cornered up at times. You know, she she is definitely you know uh, a major part in his life as well as her sons. Uh, you know, so uh, like I said, they were both in my life, president. Uh, you know, raising raising me and my brothers. And some of the best memories I have of my dad was the times that I didn't know whether or not he was going to be there and look up and all of a sudden pop, he was there. You know, and I know from the career that me and you do as a lineman, how hard it is to be on the road sometimes. You know, and I, I didn't really have that come to light to me till years later when I was having to do it of just how hard it is to go away from your family and be on the road to make money for him, how hard it is on the man. You know, that, that's a major sacrifice, and I've got the, the utmost respect for my dad for doing that, you know. Uh, although I may not have understood it when I was a child, but now I do. You know, it, it's, you know, I look at life as being a game of sacrifices. It's about what you're willing to sacrifice to get what you want, and I watched him do that my whole childhood. My mom as well. My mom worked a full-time job. Uh, and then also worked a 24-hour day job as a mom that never got a paycheck for it. You know? Yeah. Um, she had three meals on the table every day. 
she washed, cooked, and cleaned. And my mom was that was that mom that was she was born to be a mother of three boys. You know, she she was the one that got out there when Dad was on the road, swinging the ball on the road before ball games, teaching us how to play tennis, teaching us how to play baseball, how to be men. You know, the the fondest memory I've got of my mom is right before my first school dance. I'll never forget. I was a the shy husky kid. You know, <laughs> a school dance petrified me. Mm-hmm. And I guess my mom could read that on me, and she knew that I didn't know how to dance. And you know, I call it trying to dance now. But she uh, she got me in the live uh, in the kitchen and showed me how to dance before that before that school dance. Man, that, <laughs> that's a memory that I'll never forget. And uh, other than that, you know, I, like I said, I just grew up in a loving family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they they instilled in me that it takes money to make the world go round, but mm-hmm. you know, money isn't everything. You know. I was I was brought up not to put a whole ton of value on money or the materialistic things that money can bring, you know. And even now, I try to show that in everything that I do. It's the small things that count. It's the thought that counts. Uh, you know, love means way more than money to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask. And that, it was a lot of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead, buddy. No, no. Um, I wanted to touch base on something you had said earlier that you had this like fear or anxiety, I guess of waiting to see if your dad was coming home and then it would just pop up, you know, he would just show up and it made your whole world. How did his traveling, like, like if you can go deeper on that, how did his traveling affect your family that looking back hindsight now and what lesson could you say you learned from that absence from him? Can you elaborate on that, Lane, a little bit? Yeah, I'm going to embrace the pause on this one uh, for just a second. You know, uh, I remember me as a child waiting around for that phone call. You know, this was, this was before cell phones. You know, so my mom would go a full day sometimes or maybe a day and a half without talking to him. Uh, you know, so I remember as a child waiting around to get that phone call from my dad every night and, you know, and I, I can understand now how hard it was to to run a family as a father from being on the road. Uh, and I can only imagine, you know, I, I do know now how hard it was on a marriage, you know, to, to be away from home and, you know, like I said, pop up to, you know, uh, to kind of place yourself back in the family dynamics. You know, with, with him being on the road, my mom got her personal routine going that worked for her and her three boys. And then when Dad would come back, it was like, yay, Dad's home. It's party time now. Uh, you know, so I'm sure that played its little role in kind of creating hectic times around the house. But, uh, you know, the the lesson I learned from that, you know, is the love of a father. You know, I watched my dad go through great lengths, sacrifice things, put himself last to provide for his family. You know, so that that instilled a, a good worth ethic in me, and yeah, you know, I, I, like I told you uh, just previously that you know it, it was memories of I'd be at a ball game, you know, wanting my dad to be there because I'd look around and see all the other kids' dads there, and I would just be waiting on be there. I would get news that he wasn't going to be there, and then the ball game would start, and all of a sudden I'd look up and I'd see that blue that blue Walmart work shirt there where he just got in off the road, man, it was like I had won the grand prize at a lottery drawing or something, which is some of the best times of my life. 
you know, and like I told you, you know, I, I may not have understood it then, you know, and with, with time and age comes wisdom, you know, and that, you know, the older I got, the more respect I had for my dad to be able to go away from town and work to provide for his family. And, you know, and he wanted nothing special for it. You know, it was, it was his job and he did it willingly mm-hmm. and did it awesome. So do you feel that he taught you? about sacrifice and is that something that you try to share with your children as well as, as a father definitely definitely you know life is a game of sacrifices to me you know uh, where i was born and raised that there's no industry there david it's uh, a lot of the guys i went to school with all ended up in the oil field uh, being from that far down south that's where a majority of the men went to work was the oil field uh, and my dad worked for walmart distribution driving for them and that was another industry that was there. But other than that, that was pretty much it. You know, and I, by the grace of God, I got gifted with being able to get into the line work at an early age, mm-hmm. and which you know, you know what that brings. You know, it was months and months on the road away from home. But yeah, that's you know, that's something I try to pass on to my kids and everybody around me. You know, the world's out there for your taking, and if you do it right, putting God first. You know, the world can be at your fingertips. It's, it's all about what you're willing to do to get there. You know, like Jesus. Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for us. Mm-hmm. You know? No, absolutely. I wanted to read you something, uh, Lane, that I had written, and it was pretty profound. Okay? It says, Fathering is your unique ability to the good health and well-being of your children and family. With that being said, Lane, what do you do to ensure the above statement is practiced in your home? And I make sure to be there, you know, uh, either you know, not necessarily in person. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I've kind of, you know, I've listened to your podcast and, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to put a spin on things here for you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm going through a divorce right now. Uh, and my two babies I haven't seen in almost a year. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the failed marriage did with, you know, infidelity and time away from home, you know, that the, the, the the tension that puts on a marriage, you know, but even though I haven't seen them in a year, I make it a point to call every day and talk to them. Uh, and it's, it's tough, you know, but that's, that's life. I, I deal with life on life's terms, you know. Uh, and, you know, with, with that being said, I think back on the times that I could have been there, you know, or I just got too wrapped up in work, you know, and I would bring work home or, you know, it's, it's sad to say, but I would put work before my family, and the money become the money become me. You know, I I would get wrapped up in making that big storm check, and all of a sudden I would look up, and I had been gone away from home for twelve or fourteen weeks, and you know that's it's a hindsight being twenty twenty, and that's that's advice I give to anybody. This life here is just temporary. You know, uh, what we do in this life determines what we do in the next life. You know. So I, that's something I try, you know, moving forward I, is I will never try not to disrespect time on this earth, you know, that's something we don't get back, you know. Man, your your words are just so full of wisdom, brother. It's absolutely true. Um, the things we take for granted come back to bite you. I mean, yes, we, sir, they do, buddy. They do. I mean, we we tend, you know, like as men. Man, we we get caught up in our roles, 
of I got to provide, I got to provide, I got to do this, I got to do that. And we're so focused, especially linemen being alpha males. Okay, we're alpha males. I, you know, and, and people listening, if you don't know what a lineman is, we're the top of the food chain in the in the industry for construction. I mean, there is nothing. <laughs> yes, sir, buddy. There is nothing we cannot do. You know, we make it happen. And we get so focused on doing that. And then we, we buy into this, that we're doing it for our family. We're doing it for our family. And yet, what we're putting out there, you know, the price of success, you know, you can't serve two masters. So when we're trying to get success in the world and be good and do all this other stuff to, to climb the ladder, I guess you should say, something's got to give somewhere else. You know, you can't serve two masters. You can't be a great father and a great lineman. You know what I mean? You can only be That's great right. at one thing. And at the end of the That's day, right. it's our choice. You know? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I look back on that, David, as, uh, you know, with line work. You know, I, like I said, a lot of that played a pivotal role even in my personal life, my my uh, failed marriage, my, my day-to-day life is, you know, when we're at work, you know, when we're in the air working, we've got control of what goes on up there. And in every lineman's fear is losing control because uh, when we lose control in the air working somebody's not going home the way they came to work that day you know God. and i took that home into my personal life you know and I, I know by looking back on my life's timeline that that became so evident that with my life i always had to hold on to one little bit of smidgen of control and not let go and let God. And that was the hardest thing I've had to learn how to do is to relinquish complete control to God and let him work through me, you know, because I was always scared of losing control and something bad happening that I I let that go over into my spiritual life, you know. Mm -hmm. And not only until I've got the lowest point in my life and relinquished complete control to God and say, you know, God, I tried for this many years and I failed miserably every time. You know, I, I, I'm me. I'm here. I have nothing else. Take me. Salvage me. Make me into what you want me to be. Yeah, I mean, gosh. Dude, I, I just just hearing you in those words, you know, I'm, I'm looking back, too, and just reflecting in my own life, and you're absolutely right. You're right, dude. I mean, you hit the nail right on the head. Control, because it's all about control. I remember the first time I got taught that lesson about positive control, you know, especially when you're controlling your tails in the air. And I had this big lineman. I want to share with this <laughs> with you because you'll probably laugh. I had this big lineman come up to me. He was the foreman, you know, ex-Marine sniper, whatever, you know what I mean? Big old juiced out guy. <laughs> and, you know, he's out of 769, you know, Arizona, and they're pretty militant. They run their, you know, they're, they're militant. That's a, a all lineman hall, okay? So he came up to me and he's like, let me show you something. He's like, you're supposed to have positive control. He's like, you know what positive control is? And he was real calm. I was like, yeah, you grab it like this and whatever. He's like, no. He's like, that's passive control. He's like, passive control, you can control it, but if it gets away from you, you can't grab it. And then he grabbed me, dude, and he shook me. And I'm a little dude. I'm only like five, six on a good day, but I'm, you know, I'm, like a little brick, you know what I mean? <laughs> he grabs me right. and he shook me 
And he's all, this is positive control. And he's like, I can move you to the left. I can move you to the right. I can do whatever I want with you right now. He's all, that's how you grab these things. He's all, that way they don't get out of control and you don't have a fire like you just did. And that stuck that with me. That was a lesson learned there, buddy. Oh, yeah. You know, but it's right, though. We learn that because it's instilled in us, right, about control. But the reality, the only thing we really can control is ourselves and how we respond to situations, you know, in our life, in our personal life, you know. And That's right. And I think, you know, that's where the devil really hit me at, mm-hmm. David, was, you know, the, the, the inner thought process with me. Mm-hmm. You know, any time I would fail, I would beat myself up miserably. And through some things uh, that happened in my earlier childhood that we're going to uh, discuss later on this podcast, Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always had a hole inside of me, you know, that was just full of hate and hurt and misery. You know, so the devil knew his way in. Anytime I would fail, even if things that didn't really matter, man, I would beat myself up. And it was like a, a whirlwind revolving door of just BS and heartbreak. I would just, oh, my God, I'm not good enough. I'll never get this. I'll never get this. I'll never get this. And that was the devil's way of keeping me down. You know that? saying of kicking a dog when he's down yeah and the devil knew how to do that brother and you know us linemen we hate to feel like we're not good enough uh in anything we're very competitive and very hard-headed you know so for somebody that's living like i was living and going through things i was going through to have the thought put in my head that i'm not good enough and i'll never be good enough it became it, it spilled over in every aspect of my life it was like my cup was overflowing but not in a good way I know what you mean, brother. I I, I, I I know exactly what you mean. I want to uh, go ahead and go into this topic. Okay, we're going to dive deep right now, Lane. And it's uh, second chances. You know, so if I can get you to start opening up about, you know, the events that led up to what we talked about, you know, just your childhood, you know, the wreck that changed your life and how did it affect you and stuff like that, if you don't mind, brother. I want to give the floor to you to just go ahead and just open up. All right, brother. Well, put your put your five point racing horns on. It's going to be a going to be a dark ride, but it's going to end up beautiful. Uh, I'm going to start out by saying I am 110 percent evidence that anything is possible through God. That nothing is impossible. So here we go. Um, a part of my childhood, later on in my teenage years, I could not remember. And it was a gap from about 8 to 19 years old. Uh, I remember before and I remembered after. Uh, but that, that little span of time right there I had no correct recollection of. But I knew early on in my early teenage years that I had a self-loathing and a self-hatred in very self-destructive behavioral patterns that were going on that I knew wasn't healthy and was too ashamed or too worried to, to go to anybody about. Uh, you know, I had a hole inside of me that was just, like I, I mentioned, it was full of hate. It was full of pain, bitterness, misery, and any ages if you can think of dealing with that. Uh, and I remember I was about 15 years old and had gotten 
some dental work done, and the dentist prescribed me some opiate painkillers. And from the very first one I took, and this is this is the power of this stuff that I'm talking about. It's, it's very sick. How it works. It's very powerful. I can relate the feeling that I got off of that pain pill as to the feeling I got when I got baptized. It completely took over my life. It, for once that hole was full, I was no longer in pain. I was no longer in mental agony. And I was like, where have you been my whole life? And that, that started my opiate addiction. And it, it progressed from that point on into Oxycontin. And I, uh, I overdosed when I was 17 years old and had to go into treatment. And when I got out of treatment, uh, you know, I, I learned the 12 step game and, you know, learned everything I needed to do, but I didn't focus on that hole. I didn't know what to focus on. I just knew that hole was still there. So it was only a short period of time that I, I fell back into the opiate world, back on the pain medicine and, uh, abusing painkillers. Uh, and had, by the time I got back on the second time, I'd gotten hurt again and was getting them from a doctor. And October of 2010, I had a overdose on fentanyl. Uh, my aunt walked in and found me dead. Uh, and I had to go into treatment after that. And the counselor I was seeing at that treatment center noticed this hole inside of me. And by that time, I kind of knew what the hole was from, mm -hmm. you know, just from studying about psychology and learning about psychology. I knew that it was something probably very detrimental, uh, that my brain had went into self-protect mode over to keep it from wrecking me. Uh, you know, my brain coped the best that it could with what it had to work with. So at that treatment center, he asked me if I wanted to go under hypnosis to figure it out. By that time, I, I knew that if I didn't do something, that I was not going to live very much longer. Uh, I had never intended on living that long to begin with, being in that much pain and misery. I, I, I wanted to die. I didn't care whether or not I lived, you know, and to jump back kind of a little off track. But that's, you know, I can attribute that to why I progressed in line work, maybe as fast as I did because I went to work every day not caring whether or not I lived. I did a lot of things way sooner than what I should have in line work. I wasn't ready. And thank God he was walking with me on a daily basis that I made it through it and I learned from it. But to get back on the story, I, uh, I went under hypnosis, and as soon as they brought me out of it, David, I had every memory from those two years come back in a wave. And... I absolutely went crazy because that, that was at the age of, I think it was 26. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I found out that I had been sexually abused by a family member and it all come back just in one instant. And I went crazy. I, you know, the guy, the counselor had to control me in his office. It was you know, as relieved as I was. It was like, Oh my God, the embarrassment, the hate, the pain and, yeah, I had already been dealing with things before that. Uh, like I said, the, the self-loathing, the self-hate, the self-mutilation, the punishment. Uh, but this was a turning point in my life. This was when I could really 
no, hey, you know, now I know I wasn't just abusing a painkiller because I was a young kid wanting to be stupid and experiment. Mm-hmm. I was trying to heal something, and now that I know what the ailment is, now we can move forward on healing. You know what I mean? Yes. And at this time, I didn't have God in my life. Uh, you know, so I, I had the I had the tools, and I knew what I was going to be working on to fix. But I still not did not have the main tool in my life. So I set out on a journey after that, trying to heal from this and trying to move on from it. And it wasn't a good thing. David, I went right back to the things I had been struggling with. I went right back into the drugs. Um, you know, cause that was the only thing I knew when I got in complete misery, uh, that would kind of take it away for a minute. But then eventually that quit working and it, it was just, Oh man, if, if I can describe putting all of Hill's fury and pain into one bottle mm-hmm. and me diving off in swimming in it my whole life, that, that's what it was like. Uh, you know, and I didn't, I didn't know who to tell or who I could tell. Or I didn't have anybody to talk, uh, talk about it to. And I was embarrassed. I, you know, I, I kept it all in. I told nobody, mm-hmm. but me and that counselor. So I, I tried to heal it on my own. And like I said, it, I failed again. And with me failing again, that pushed me that much deeper back into my addiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, then come along. Uh, I'm going to jump forward a little bit, you know, uh, to November uh, 2017. I was involved in a double fatality at work um, and keep in mind this, this accident was not my fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had no fault in it, but with the state of mind I was in and the things I had been through as a child, I found a way to blame myself for that. Mm-hmm. And it, it affected me. It affected me greatly. That accident led me to uh, never being able to get on a helicopter and do helicopter work again. Uh, it, it, I lost the nerve for it. You know, that's all I could see when uh, when I went to get back on a helicopter. Uh, you know, so failing to do that pushed me that much deeper. And with that, when that accident happened, man, I, uh, the only thing I knew to do was dive in the bottle and grind myself down at work. Uh, so that's what I did and I, I, I quit that company and went to work at a different one and I was working seven days a week 14 to 16 hours a day grinding myself down to where I didn't have to sleep very much I didn't want to go to sleep I didn't want to dream right I didn't want to think about it I was just trying the best that I knew how to do to get it out of my mind mm-hmm. and I, I did I thought I was doing good you know, I was making awesome money <laughs> you know I was yeah. I was doing good at work i was like a machine and uh i made it all right to july the 5th of 2018 and that's when my world shattered um i'd gotten off work and i was headed home for the fourth of july and i was dead tired man i was i remember being so tired i couldn't even think straight i drove through one state on the way home and don't even remember doing it uh, i was that tired so I, uh, I pulled over the rest area and took a nap and uh, woke up later than what I had intended. So I, I jumped over in the driver's seat out of the passenger seat mad, and I never buckled my seatbelt. So I made it 30 minutes down the road, and last thing I remember is I blinked, and when I opened my eyes, I was running off the interstate. And I had my crew set on 85. Uh, I had my left foot propped up on the air conditioner bent with the window down, trying to stay awake, and... I had a guy following behind me that, that later on told me a story of what happened. 
but to tell it from his view, I nosed off in the meeting the interstate, ran off into one of those concrete ditches, and my truck started flipping. Uh, during the first flip, I was ejected, and my left foot hung up in the windshield, which when the truck flipped, the, uh, the, the roof caved down on my foot, and the second flip, it shot me down the interstate 200 foot. And when the guy saw it, he told me, he said, man, I thought you were dead. You looked like a rag doll flying through the air. Uh, when he got to me, I was laid. I was crucified on the south or the northbound side of the Interstate 55 on the center line, out cold. And he, you know, he drove me out of the road, and that's when I realized how bad I was hurt. I destroyed my left foot, and I, you know, it, it, during the wreck, I wasn't drinking or driving or anything like that. Uh, you know, I was completely stone cold sober. I, you know, I was just dog tired. And when they loaded me in the back of the ambulance, I was laying there in pain out of this world. David, I was gritting my teeth, waiting on them to give me something for pain. And I remember as we're talking on this call right now, my aunt said, baby, you're going to be okay. And I jumped up and I looked around and there was nobody there. And I found that odd. And I asked the English driver, uh, I said, is my aunt here? He said, no, man, there's nobody but us and the sheriff's deputies. Hmm. So I, just, I brushed it off as maybe I bumped my head a little bit too hard during the wreck, you know. Yeah. But, um, I made it to the hospital, and they life-spited me to University Hospital, and I went straight into surgery. And when I come to later on at night, my mom and dad was there, and I found out then that my aunt passed away right after I had that wreck. You know, uh, and you could offer me a million dollars right now to tell you that I did not hear her in the back of that ambulance, and I could not touch a penny of it. You know, I believe with all my heart my aunt loved me enough that she knew where I was headed, and she was a godly woman, and mm -hmm. she traded her life for mine that morning uh, to give me a second chance. And uh, that was the first time in my life that after that wreck that I was able to come home. I couldn't go to work to run from my problems. Uh, I was there stuck. And all of a sudden, you tell a lineman that he'll probably never walk right again, he'll never climb a pole again. I was looking, I had... I had my three kids I was raising. Uh, I was married at the time and raising her oldest three. So I had I had a family full that I was taking care of, and all of a sudden I had no job. Uh, I got fired while I was on the operating table. Uh, and it was like my world was caving in on top of me. And I, I was so scared that I was going to come home from the hospital and roll myself off in a mile-deep hole with despair. And I, I told myself, oh, if you're not going to do this, you're strong. You're not going to do this. And I'll be doggone Dave if I didn't do the exact thing I was scared of. I come home and I just rolled myself off in a mile deep hole of despair. I hated my life. I was miserable. I wanted out. I wish I would have died in a wreck. But then I had these babies that were watching me. Mm -hmm. You know, and I remember me and my wife got in a fight and, you know, I, I told her, she said, you know, it would have been easier if I'd have died in that wreck. Not to realize that my little boy was standing behind me when I told her that. And the look on his face, I'll never forget. And it's like, I can't believe my dad wants to die. You know, and uh, that re really shaped me. You know, it, like I said, I, I had time to come home. And all the things that I thought I was doing okay, just barely getting by, I realized were wrong. I, were, I wasn't living up to my full potential. I wasn't living up to what people knew I could be. Uh, I was letting everybody down. I was letting myself down. I was letting my parents down. I was letting God down. And, you know, the, the, the powerfulness of the addiction 
and what I was going through is that still didn't stop me. You know, uh, I, I did a little, I did okay after the wreck for a little while, but then it was right back in the pain medication because what did they give me after the wreck? They give me more pain medication. Mm-hmm. So it was like, God, am I meant to be an opiate addict all my life? Is this the way I'm going to be? If so, take me now. I'm, I'm destroyed. I've destroyed myself. I've lost jobs. I'm destroying my image. I'm destroying my reputation. Uh, mine and my family's relationship was on the rock. It was like every fear I had was true right here in front of my face. It had all come true. And what do I do now? Uh, don't nobody know really what all I've gone through, so I don't know how to really disclose where I'm at mentally or uh, talk about the things I've been through or get everything off my chest. You know, I just had to tell people bits and pieces of my story per who they were in my life. You know, mm-hmm. was, I had nobody at that time in my life that I could tell the whole story to and just say, you know, just vomit my feelings out. Just blah. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of years, or uh, June or January of 2020 is when this whole story came to a head. Um, you know, I went through the wreck, fought my way back from that, and then been through all the things I talked about before, still dealing with the uh, child abuse and not, you know, not knowing how to heal from that. And I've had enough, man. I had enough. And I'm not going to say I purposely tried to commit suicide, but I'm going to tell you that I didn't do anything to stop it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I overdosed on heroin uh, January of 2020, and my little boy walked in and found me, my seven-year-old son. And if, if I think about it too hard, I'm going to break down on air, and I'm going to tell you, yeah, it kills me on a daily basis to know what I put on that kid, David. You know, because when I woke up, when they brought me back, I saw his face first. And it was like I let him down, man. I was his hero. And... That's what got me to want to change right there. I threw everything was seeing what I did to that kid. He didn't know he he was scared to be around me from that point on, you know, uh, and that destroyed me. You know, I brought all of my bull crap into my kid's life, you know, and I, I, the things I did not want to be, the things I was scared to turn out to be is exactly what I turned out to be. Um, and, you know, it was affecting my kid. Mm-hmm. So... You know, uh, I started praying then. God, I don't know what it's going to take. I don't know where to go or what to do. But God, please get me out of this life I'm in. If something don't change, I'm going to die. I know it. I'm I'm 36 years old. I'm tired. At that time, I was 35. I'm tired. I'm wore out. And I, I'm a wit end. I've almost lost my career. Uh, I've basically lost my marriage. I'm losing my kids. My family's relationship was on the rocks. And, you know, I'd, I'd had some clean time built up when I overdosed. You know, so that was another thing that was just a slap in the face that I had just relapsed again. Mm-hmm. And the more I prayed that, the more I started feeling God, God coming back into my life. And to kind of protect her on some things, I'm going to say it took infidelity to make that prayer come true. Uh, I come home from work and found out that my wife had moved on. And I, I don't blame her, you know, because I, I wouldn't be in the, as good of a husband as what I could have been. Uh, I was dealing with my own demons, my own issues. So I'm, uh, keep in mind, I'm not trying to bash her to anybody listening to you. Yeah. Uh, this is all about me and what God can do for you. Uh, so when that happened, 
I, I just took a sabbatical, you know. I, uh, I knew everything I needed to do. I knew how to do it out of all the years of living that life. I'd put some tools in my toolbox. And, you know, I, I made a deal with God. God, if you'll get me out of this life and make it possible for me to change, I will change. And it was like all of a sudden I had this calm come across me. And when I tell you, David, it is lined up perfectly from the time I prayed that prayer into now, mm-hmm. it is mind-boggling, mind-boggling. Uh, you know, I, I've gotten my family back. My relationship with my kids is better than ever. Uh, the relationship with mom and dad, you know, I've got a, a wonderful, wonderful angel that God's blessed me with in my life. You know, she... Uh, you know, I never intended on getting in another relationship after after coming out of that marriage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, God saw otherwise. He brought this wonderful, godly woman in my life and started preaching the Bible to me. You know, and she made me want to be a better man. You know, she would, you know, if I was saying bad words, she would stop me and be like, you don't do that. That's not right. Mm-hmm. And I had never had nobody care about me like that. You know, and with her care and God working through her, I got delivered, brother. And as of right now, life is great. When I tell you life is great, and there's there's a better way. There's always a better way than what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, God is in my life working every day. Uh, like a, you know, like in the introduction, I work for a large utility out of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I spent 20 years in the field doing power line work, and now I'm involved with the engineering department. Uh, I've got a wonderful team behind me at that utility. Everybody there is like family to me, uh, you know. But it, it took me going through all of that to get to where I'm at now, uh, you know. And I, I look at it as like a sword being forged. You know, I had to go through the fire and had to had the crap beat out of me time and time again to be honed into a perfectly sharpened weapon to do God's work. And I take great pride in that. And I witness to everybody I come across whether they respect you or not, or, you know, uh, some, some places around don't even want you speaking God. And, you know, I, I've made the comment that if, if that's a place like that and they don't want me to talk about God, I can't be there very long because they're, every conversation I talk about has got to have God in it because of what he's done for me. You know, I'm one of the 97 percentile that has mm-hmm. beat an opiate addiction so far. You know, I know tomorrow I can hold a new ball game, but with God by my side, brother, anything is possible. I can do anything. You know, from where I've come from, from the from the overdoses to the bad wreck, you know, God left me here to spread his word, to spread the promise of what he's got in this life after us. All you have got to do is get on your knees and come to him. And, you know, I never really knew how to be a show-up dad until I found a love for God and I saw God's love for me. And through that, mm-hmm. then I was able to love you know, when God loved me and I saw how he loved me and I loved him back, then I could love my kids in the right way. And that's sad to say, but that's the truth. You know, and any new mm-hmm. parent that are just starting out as parents or parents that live my story or even worse stories, a story similar, uh, you've got to have God. You know, if you don't have God in the foundation of your family or your children's lives, then it's going to crumble. Uh, it's only a matter of time, or if not crumble, it's not going to be as good as what it can be. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's such a grand world out there with God, you know, and it's just you know, I I can't think enough people, you know, because there was people that beat their head up against the wall, 
you know, running back and forth in the wall time and time again, trying to get me to change or try to show me a different way. But I had to be that hard-headed lineman to do it all on his own, mm-hmm. you know, and I failed. And then, you know, I found God, you know, so I'm, and I know I'm kind of getting long-winded here, but, man, I could go on for days about what God has done for me, especially, you know, I heard the statistic a couple of years ago that one out of every three linemen is an addict or an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And that was heartbreaking. That was heartbreaking to me. Uh, you know, so I, I really love to witness the linemen, you know, because I know that breed. I am that breed. Uh, I know how easily it is to be exposed to prostitution, drugs, and alcohol, and the, the poisons of money. You know, I know what it's like to be up there on that road. And if I can tell my story over and over again to save one soul, then so be it. You know, uh, whether I get judged for it or not, I, you know, that's, that's out of my hands. But God saved me to spread his word, and that's where I'm at. You know, and I'm still a work in progress, but, man, it, it's, it's beautiful where I've been and where I'm going. Absolutely. I mean, your story is just, I mean, I'm, forgive me if I'm quiet. It's, it's just mind blowing. I mean, it's, it's an amazing, amazing story that I know is just going to help so many people out there, not just linemen, but fathers in general, and even wives that are hearing this. Um, there's some stuff that I wanted to ask you about that you had mentioned. Um, you talked about how you had went to therapy and you went through, uh, uh, being, um, put under hypnosis, you know, with that being said, that brought up these dark things that had happened to you. Now, do you feel that that was a good thing for them to bring it up? That way you can kind of deal with the root because it seems like the opiate addiction was the fruit, right? And everybody always tries to fix the fruit, you know, that's happening. And that's how we don't we, we don't oh. we don't overcome that, right? So we got to get down to the meat of it, the root, you know. So, do you feel that that hypnosis Definitely. helped you to unlock that? De- Definitely, brother. You hit that dead on the head. The the opiate addiction is what masked everything. You know, with that, I was the life of the party. I was always happy. I was on top of the world, uh, and it, that was not the root of the problem. And you know, my mom and dad spent so much money on therapy and treatment centers and the heartbreak of the things that I was doing throughout my addiction uh, to provide for my addiction, you know, the broken promises, the shattered dreams, the lies, the manipulation, the deception, you know, but I didn't know how to come out and tell my dad, such a manly man, you know, hey, dad, you know, I, I was molested as a child because with any parent, any parent can find a way to blame themselves for the mistakes of their children. Mm-hmm. And that's that's not how it is. I had the best parents, David, the best parents that I could have ever prayed for. I love them with all my heart, you know, uh, and they are just prime examples of human beings, mothers and fathers. They set the best example of what a marriage should be, of what a mother and father should be, how they should act, how they should present themselves in public when people are looking and when people are not even looking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my dad always proved to me that if I could be, grow up to be half the man that he is, dude, I'd be awesome. You know, I, I remember one time as a child, my dad sold himself short in a, in a deal, dealing with some rattle just because he felt like he got over on the guy. 
you know, that, that was type man that my dad was. And, you know, I, I was I was fortunate enough to learn exactly what kind of heart my dad had at a very early age. Uh, he took me and my brothers and my mom to a WCW wrestling match at the Coliseum there in my home state mm-hmm. back when Bill Goldberg was a thing. And we got up there to buy T-shirt souvenirs, you know, and uh, there was this little kid there that wanted a Bill Goldberg T-shirt. And I remember looking at the kid, I can play it in my mind as a video like it was yesterday. The little kid had a few crumbled up dollars in his hand. And my dad asked him, son, what do you want? And the little boy pointed out the shirt, and it was like $30. And my dad pointed the shirt and told the guy to bring it to him and get bought the shirt for the kid and then let him keep his money, which probably, you know, with the amount of money my mom and dad were making at that time, it probably took away some things that he wanted or my mom wanted or things that we could have had. Mm-hmm. But my dad bought it for that kid. And I was like, you know, what's, what an honorable and loving thing to do. And, you know, my dad never saw the kid again. But that, that instilled a lesson in me from that point on. You know of what a man should be, but you know to get back to your question, yeah, the 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 hypnosis just took a cap off of it. It was like opening the top on a on a uh, shook up bottle. You know, it exploded, mm-hmm. and but when it exploded, it got down to the root of the problem, and it took me years, and I still struggle with it some days, mm-hmm. uh, healing from it. You know, because it it left thoughts in my head of. You know, and this this is the sickness, and this is what uh, sexual abuse does to people. Did I put myself in that situation, or did I enjoy that? Mm-hmm. Does that make me a homosexual? Uh, so I struggled with that my whole childhood, mm-hmm. my whole teenage years, years that was developing me into the human that I am. The the very fundamental times of my life, I was worried about things like that that a normal child shouldn't have to be worried about and then dealing with it on my own because I didn't have God in my life. I I didn't have a foundation. I was that house that the foundation was built on sand, and it was only a matter of time before it was going to topple. No, it's it's good to hear that you said about the foundation. You know what I mean? That's uh, Every time you keep saying foundation, I keep getting that scripture where there is no foundation but the foundation that's built on Jesus Christ. And you're absolutely right, brother. I mean, there's therapy, you know, there's counseling, there's all these things. You know, but true healing actually comes from God. I mean, these things might be tools. You know what I mean? They might be tools to help you. And like, obviously, the the uh, hypnosis helped you to unlock that. But it wasn't until you actually had to hit that rock bottom to where you gave it up. I mean, I think pride has a lot to do with it, especially with men, especially with men like us, right? I think that pride keeps us from that level of intimacy the level of intimacy with god you know with the level of intimacy with our children with our spouse we don't want to feel like we're um we don't want to feel vulnerable you know we we want people right. to know that we're in control we got this you know and uh i well, think you know the bible talks about how Pride comes before a fall, you know, and that's something that I think all men need to really think about, you know, that level of pride, you know, it's, it's it's crazy because as children we're taught, and I say this over and over again on all my podcasts, because it's true as men, we're taught to stifle our emotions all the time. Don't cry, you know, rub some dirt on it, kid, get up there. Suck it up, be a man. Yes, yeah, suck it up, be a man. You know, and 
we're taught this at an early age. So when it comes down to being vulnerable, the way God wanted us to be, not vulnerable and weak, because we're not weak. God doesn't want weak, man. And I think a lot of people think that, oh, you're Christian. Oh, you're weak. No, we're not weak. It takes a man to admit when he's wrong. And I tell that to a lot of dudes. I mean, people ask me all the time, oh, so you're a Christian. You're one of them Bible thumpers. I'm like, <laughs> and I'll, I'll respond. I'll be like, don't think I'm weak because I'm a Bible thumper. I'm doing this. So I don't hurt you. <laughs> right, right. And that's the so, honest Jim, truth. If you would have known the guy before. If you would have known the guy before me, you wouldn't have liked him very much. Exactly. And, you know what I mean? But that's 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 where we're at, you know. And I think it takes a very strong man. I mean, you're a perfect example of a man who's just totally sold out for God. Totally sold out, who, who recognized he had issues, and he was a big man to say, hey, man, I need help. I can't do this. And I just want to commend you for coming out here on this story and just sharing that with us, you know? Well, I'm on, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you how God works in my life, you know, and you just, you brought to mind that, you know, I'd kind of taken some notes that I wanted to cover in this podcast. Like I said, I mean, I owe it to so many people, Mm -hmm. not to mention what I owe to God to be able to come out here and say the things that I need to say and say it correctly, not to put the glory on myself because I failed miserably, mind you. Mm -hmm. I failed miserably. Uh, but I owe it to God to give God all the glory of everything he has done in my life and the people around me. But I'm going to tell you, I heard a sermon this past Sunday. Uh, me and my fiance Carmen, we went to watch uh, an evangelist preach Sunday night, and the topic of his sermon was called Frustrated Grace. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those sermons where I felt like he was sitting there eyeballing me the whole sermon. <laughs> there comes the bead to sweat on the forehead, and I'm like, God, I hear you. God, let's see what you got this time. So he goes on to talk about the difference between mercy and grace. Mm. And I was like, man, this, this might turn me off a little bit. But, you know, I, I, I paid attention. And he said grace is that pull in your heart when you're sitting in church to go down to the altar, that, that pull that God puts on you, that the tears you feel well up during a prayer, during a song, or during a sermon when you know God's speaking directly to you, that connection, that pipeline flowing his love and flowing his words into your heart, that's great. Mercy is, as described as preacher, there was this uh, 10-year-old boy at his church that knew how to cook methamphetamines by the age of 10. He cooked dope from the time he was 10 to the time he was 12, and he was taught by his mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the little boy got saved, prayed his way into God's grace, uh, got saved at that church. And her brother was also at that church. And her brother was a bigger man. And, you know, one night during altar call, they both come down there and prayed for his mother. And the big man got down his knees and said, God, do whatever you have to do to save my sister. I don't want her to burn in hell. Do whatever you got to do. Three weeks later, the big man died of a heart attack. And she was so messed up, she never she never came to the funeral. And that was God's first attempt at mercy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last and final attempt, a couple years later, the boy was out of town and wanted his mom to watch his dog and feed his dog while he was out of town. And this dog was a beautiful pit bull, big old baby, had never bothered anybody. And by this time, his mom was 90 pounds soaking wet, had come over there to feed the dog. 
and I don't know if the dog saw the devil on her or what he saw on her, but the dog went crazy and attacked the woman. He drug her out in the woods where he proceeded to eat her breast. He ate her legs to the bone, and he continued to eat on her for, they said, over 30 hours. Wow. And the boy come home and saw the dog, and he still could not get the dog off of his mom, so he had to shoot the dog. So the woman went back or went to the hospital where she lived for another 24 hours, and through that, she prayed her way back to God and in heaven. And, you know, some people, the preacher said, when he said this, it struck me so hard. He said, you know, some people call that a hound from hell. He said, but that's a hound from heaven. Mm -hmm. He said, God has mercy that he don't want to see none of his kids burn in hell. He will do whatever he has to do to save you. And that was him showing mercy. You know, and it took whatever it took. And you look at my life on that. He had tried so many times before to get me. And it took me losing everything, my kids my marriage, my jobs, my wreck, my family, losing friends. Uh, it took me losing everything before. And thank God, it was, it was even times I lost my life, David, that mm-hmm. it still did not hit. But finally, God had enough mercy on me to let me devastate my son and let me see firsthand the devastation of what I caused in him. And that's when it all come to light. You know, that this is it. This, you know, and I know now this was my last chance I've got. You know, God has shown mercy on me so many times, you know, and, you know, I tried to live it mentality. It was, I'm a man, I'm going to suck it up, I'm going to be big and bad. But, you know, the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. I mean, your story is just absolutely amazing, brother. I... (laughs) One of the things that came to mind when you were talking is um, the scripture that talks about how the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? But that God has come to give you life and more abundantly. And where I'm going with this, Lane, is that I think sometimes people think that God is the one who causes death and loss. And they get it misconstrued and they get angry with God, okay, because they don't understand God. With that, you know, with that scripture kept in mind, how can you tell people that God isn't the one who causes this? He doesn't ever want these bad things to happen, but that he will allow it to happen in order to, to bring you to, you know, to your senses, I guess. You know what I mean? I mean, you, you get what I'm trying to say here? I mean... Because we know he doesn't oh, yeah. do this. Oh, yeah. and, and people get, you know, I, I don't know how many people I've met where God's the one who did this. God's the one who did this. And that's not true. You know what I mean? Because the Bible clearly says, I did not come to steal, kill, and destroy. You know? Um, what do you think about right. that? Well, you know, look, look back at every story I've told you about in my life. God did not put those pain pills in my hand. Mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. God did not make that guy do to me what he did. He made that free choice. He made that choice on his own free will. Mm -hmm. Everything I did in my life that was wrong, I did because I wanted to in some way, shape, or form. Maybe out of ignorance or maybe out of not care or misery, what have you. Uh, But God could have stepped in and intervened at any time. You know, he would have done... He could have... He had the power to do anything. He could have stopped it. 
but where would I have been and where would we be at if he would have stopped any of them things from happening? I would have just been some old miserable country boy that's out there building power lines somewhere. Mm. You know, but I, I look back at my life and I would redo it over again in a heartbeat as hard as it was, as much pain as it was. Mm-hmm. I can wake up every day and I can tell you that I truly love life and there is beauty in each and everything I see. You know, and it took me going through all of that to, to get me to where I'm at and to get me in God's grace and to get me to want to have a relationship with him. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't make all that stuff happen. He knew what was going to happen. He knows every hair I've got on my head. And he knows every thought I think before I think it. Mm-hmm. He allowed it to happen. And that's, that was what I was talking about, the frustrated grace. He mm-hmm. gave me the grace. He, he had me in church when I was a kid through my parents and stuff. But I chose to get myself out of that. So he showed mercy on me by letting all of those things happen to me to get me to where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And thank God it didn't take me dying. Absolutely. And I just want to say, man, Lane, once again, dude, just thank you for sharing your story. I mean, that that took courage. I mean, I know it's going to help the men out there. I know it's it's just so powerful, and God's going to use you in a mighty way. You know, just to hear your newfound respect for life, for people, you know, and just finding your sense of purpose of, of giving back to the community that you loved. I mean, that's that's amazing. So I just want to thank you for coming out. Um, once again, you know, this podcast is made possible through donations from listeners like you and our partners. Um, Goalie KSM 66, that's uh, ashwagandha gummies. If you haven't tried them, they're provingly they're clinically proven to ease stress and support a healthy overall quality of life. It's not habit forming, safe alternative to drinking to be the best dad you can be for your family. Go ahead and use the promo code to show up that foundation. Go to goalie gum on Instagram. And then our other sponsor is line one, one clothing company, making apparel for our first responders with a positive message to patriots that can be proud of the proceed cost goes to helping our foundation ignite the fire for father engagement. Give them a follow at Line11Clothing on Instagram. And lastly, Monzingo Knives. Each knife is created with craftsmanship that only a tradesman could provide. Find them on Instagram at Monzingo Knives and get your American-made Monzingo Knife today. Once again, Lane, thank you for coming on here, bro. And we appreciate you and thank you, bro. I mean, seriously, this this has been an amazing podcast. Oh, brother, I appreciate it, and I love you, man. You, you've been a blessing. I don't believe in coincidence. God brought you in my life for a reason. I'd like to be able to get a chance to give a shout-out to Randy Hendry, or Randy Hendry and uh, One Ministry at uh, OneMinistryLineWorkers.com, Evers Electric in Eldorado, Arkansas, Victory Power Line Services, and most of all, my family, God, and, you know, Carmen. Carmen, you've been here. You're my saving grace, and I appreciate it, and I love each and every one of you. David, I love you, brother, and glory be to God. God is great. Amen. Thank you, Lane. God bless.